Hi, my name is Isabel and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast brought to you by ESG Book. With COP28 coming up, a key focus will be how climate change affects the Middle East, Africa and other emerging markets. And that means further work on the Loss and Damages Fund, like we talked about last COP, and energy transition finance in emerging markets. In this episode, I'm speaking with someone who sits at the middle of this, Damilola Ubumbi. She is the CEO and Special UN Representative for Sustainable Energy for All, SE for All, and co-chair of UN Energy. Her organization partners with UN governments and the private sector to drive faster action on sustainable development goal number seven, SDG 7, which is all about affordable and sustainable modern energy for everyone by 2030. Hi, Damilola. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. So introducing you and, um, and your organization and the focus that you have on sustainable development goal number seven. Um, in your recent report, you explain how there is a significant kind of progress on electricity access, but also there's still some challenges that are out there. Could you expand on where we are today as it comes to the sustainable development goal number seven? Okay, well, currently um, we have made progress. I mean, there are still over 600 million people that have no access to electricity and about 2.3 billion people that have no access to clean cooking. Why this seems a bit daunting, it is an improvement from previous years. However, we're seeing a trend that's a bit disturbing in terms of most of the um, access to energy, especially electrification and clean cooking, are seen in the emerging economies, um, not necessarily in the developing economies. And we have continents like Africa, countries within Africa, still having about 567 million people with no access to electricity at all. Since electricity and sorry, energy is entwined in many of the other SDG seven, um, sorry, SDGs. In fact, energy is linked to maybe two thirds of the 169 SDGs. It's important that you can't really live a dignified life if you do not have access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Interesting. And can you expand on how that is different per region in the world? Because I can imagine that what you alluded to, that relationship between access to clean energy and other quality elements of life, so to say, are, are also very different across the world. How does that work internationally? Being from sub-Saharan Africa as well, you see that there's a barrier in terms of your socioeconomic development because you don't have access to sustainable energy. And what we're trying to say is that basically you have a number of people in a continent, almost three quarters of, of, of sub-Saharan Africa doesn't have access to electricity. So you can, you can see in contrast to Central and Southern Asia, Latin America and the Caribbean that have, you know, recorded universal access for almost 98%, the difference in just the economic growth. I think that's one. Secondly, um, access to energy is also a climate issue. So um, when you don't have access, what tends to happen is that you end up having, you know, climate refugees because these people are vulnerable and they are also cutting down trees to be able to, to provide clean cooking for their families, which in turn leads to indoor air pollution, which kills, I believe, kind of one in four women um, die from from this in terms of the mortality rates in, 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 in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a knock-on effect. It's not just about energy and economic growth. There's some very bad health um, impacts and educational impacts if we don't achieve this goal by 2030. And would you say energy access lies at the root 
of some of those problems. If we address number seven, energy access, we benefit a lot of progress in other SDGs. Absolutely. I mean, it is that kind of, you know, when you talk about countries and you say, what type of enabling environment do you have? Energy access is key. Without, you know, dedicated energy access and clean energy access, you know, SDG 13 climate, there would there would be issues um, achieving your climate goals. There's no scenario where you can achieve your 2050 climate goals without addressing energy access for all in a clean and sustainable way by 2030. The mass just doesn't add up. Another key aspect that is important is that how would you achieve your health goals if your healthcare centers are not really electrified? You know, how do you achieve your educational goals if you do not have adequate energy um, to just educate um, your body and population? So there are all these different links to it, and we're just really fortunate to be at the heart of um, emphasizing this issue but also making sure that there's solutions around this um, to, to make sure no one is left behind. And let's look further at the, the value chain of energy access. So there's renewable energy manufacturing. One of the topics of improvement that your organization has mentioned is the shifting manufacturing from primarily China and US to the rest of the world to spread the knowledge. And your organization did extensive work on stimulating that clean energy technology transfer to Africa and Southeast Asia. Can you expand on that? And what are the key impediments right now that, in your view, can actually be addressed to achieve that? I think first, it's important to understand that we're in a world where there's a supply chain issue, right? There's a supply chain from getting some really, really critical equipment to support renewable deployment from one side of the world to the other side of the world. It's also important to note that a lot of African countries and some countries, Southeast Asia, are actually are the people that have these raw materials. So instead of just seeing them as extractive economies, it's important for it to also like add value within the economy and also support the supply chain issues. So our task was was very simple. It was to look at different countries and say, how do we support PV manufacturing, two-wheeler electric um, deployment um, of, of motorbikes and also lithium battery assembling and production um, on continent and also in Southeast Asia. So we highlighted a number of countries um, that we had to work with and then what 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 stopped it from really thriving. So first it was kind of the conducive business envi- environment, the enabling national policies and the regulatory framework, and then building the capacity and knowledge within the countries to support manufacturing. And that's why we have also have links with how does it work in China, how does it work in India, how does it work in South Korea and Japan. So we can have that true knowledge transfer and that true South-to-South collaboration. And then, you know, just look at all the other opportunities like we have now in electric vehicles and, and making sure we put this together and then find ways to make sure there's obviously the financial incentives as well um, for people for people to come into these environments and sometimes joint venture with the local companies. In Sub-Saharan Africa and Africa as a whole, you know, there's the African Free Trade Continental Zone. So it's not just about manufacturing to take out of the continent, but 
other parts of Africa and other countries have very, very aggressive renewable targets. So Africa being able to supply to Africans is, is something that we are very, very proud to be driving. And we're also fortunate that a couple of the assembly plants will be up and running by the end of the year. And then we can really have that true South-South collaboration and we can re- reduce those supply chain issues that are taking months for, for adequate solar panels or lithium batteries to actually um, come on ground to be um, deployed to, to projects. And just curious, how does it work in practice, spreading the accountability and tasks in what you want to achieve? And I'm, I'm going to imagine it's a mix of everything, but... Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. I was just about to say that. It's kind of like a three-pronged approach. Um, there is the African government support, even at the local government level with um, policies, land issues, permits. You have to make sure you get that right. And then you have to have um, the support of the private sector because private sector are the ones that are going to execute the project, helping them with their business plan planning, helping them to understand new markets, who they trade with, how to really develop that. And then thirdly, you know, working with um, international developers that want that matchmaking with local developers to really to really sell their businesses and also to be one of the, you know, the suppliers um, for the local market. So we look at all three. You can't really look at any one in isolation. And it's different and, and unique parts depending on where you are in the world and what exactly they need. You have some industry and manufacturers that are more developed in some countries and in other countries is really, really the nascent part. So you rely a little bit more on government. But it's to try and say that, look, um, for a target of 2030, we haven't got enough time and we need to make sure this equipment is available and the financing to support it is also available for us to achieve our goals. Digging deeper on the financing that you are focusing on with your organization, clean energy transition requires a ton of investment, but also it's not always easy money in the sense of where where should investors put their money in and are investors informed enough to make the right decisions. And there can be risk involved as well, obviously. You initiated the Africa Carbon Markets Initiative. Can you expand on that? Like, how does it work? Why was there a need for something like this? And and how are you going to address some of the challenges that we have seen with other voluntary carbon markets out there? Okay, I think that's a really interesting question. First, I'd like to note that there's a perceived risk in investing in the African energy sector that is really, really unwarranted compared to, uh, you know, investing anywhere else. It is one of the largest growth areas in terms of opportunity. Um, You know, there will be more energy needed instead of less energy, unlike everywhere around the world. And there are actually some key laws and policies that have been put in place. I really want to start up at that point, that the perceived risk in terms of Africa compared to the rest of the world is, is, is pretty much incorrect. Secondly, as you noted, the African market carbon market initiative wasn't only started by me. It was started between ourselves, the Global um, Energy Alliance for People and Planet, and also Rockefeller Foundation. And simply what we were trying to put together and what we have achieved is how do we have um, Africa as a destination for high quality carbon markets? I hate saying Africa because it makes it seem like it's one country, the, the number of countries within that continent. But looking at the policy frameworks of national 
government, looking at what makes a high integrity carbon credit, looking at the methodologies used for, for different types of credit, carbon credits like diesel displacement, which is uncommon in anywhere else around the world. So it's not something that has been used to this rate that you would use it in the African continent that has over 30 million diesel and petrol gensets running. And then also looking at what does the advanced market commitments mean? Does the training needs to need to be done with developers? So there's there's a whole host of things that we have done um, to make sure that you know this stands up. And if you're a part of the African Carbon Market Initiative, that it is a high quality credit. Apart from that, there's also a key sense working with the government. So what does the carbon market activation plan look like? The first one that's going to come out is for the government of Kenya, which is going to be launched at the event at the African Climate Summit. Again, this is very, very important. So it's the first time a national government is saying that these are the frameworks that we need to protect the integrity of it, but really also create a market. So we're really excited as because we feel like this is one of the climate financing tools that we can use to, to bring money into this key clean energy sector. Um, but more importantly, it also forces government to do the right things. The, there's only a certain amount of investments you can actually make because if you make the wrong investments, you won't be able to claim the carbon credit. So um, it's an exciting time. We've got about 17 African presidents on board now, and we're just really trying to keep up really with, with all the demand that we found. That's great. And do you have some early successes in, in that regard or some projects that you could share that are yeah, a good example of how, how the market would work? I mean, something that will be launched in a few weeks is the catalog. So what we would have is you have a catalog for vetted um, um, developers and projects. So people who want to to buy carbon credits can come into that catalog and purchase from from from. Pu- projects and organizations that we've vetted. So I think that is that is the kind of quick win. And and more importantly, once they buy those credits, it's not just about the developer making money, it's about money also going back into the community. So and and that is really, really important, especially when so many people have gone back to extreme poverty levels after COVID. Yeah. To make it inclusive, the transition. Absolutely. It's about communities and developers. And, and that's why we are really excited. As, as a closing question, I'm curious. Say we achieve massive progress in reducing the inequality to clean energy access in, let's say, the next five or ten years. In your mind, how would the improved energy access impact the global economic outlook and the international state of affairs as it comes to the fact that energy also impacts so much of the international politics still today, right? It has been in the last decades, but you see it still today. How would you say would energy access and perhaps also more localized energy access improve the lives of everyone around the globe? Well, I think the most obvious one is the economic growth, right? So investing in clean energy will increase your GDP, which means you will have people with a better economic outlook. I think that's one. Secondly, if you have um, adequate energy and healthcare facilities and, and education facilities, you know, things like infant mortality will reduce. Um, those are very, very direct um, linkages. Educational figures will improve. Boosting your local knowledge to have um, more localized framework mean higher skill jobs. So taking people who typically would work in a, a high polluting industry and teaching them the new clean way. So, you know, it's really a win-win 
all along. And, you know, that's why we do it. And that's why we're pushing it. It is the clean energy future. There is no other alternative future that gets you the rewards and the opportunities that you need, either on the continent or the rest of the rest of the the globe is and then one that is very very important as well is that it also ensures energy security which a lot of countries are, are you know very particular about right now and rightly so so these um these cleaner ways of energy deployment of solar wind hydrogen everything to come is 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 really the future and any governments or companies that are not on board with this clean energy transition unfortunately will be left behind the change itself is not going to stop. Absolutely. And sorry, I wanted to note one thing because we haven't spoken about this, but the kind of number one fuel when you're doing the clean energy transition that you have to reduce is energy efficiency. So countries in the global north have to reduce the amount of energy they use, the leakages that they have, because that is the, the quickest way to reduce emissions as well when we talk about energy transition. So it's also the changing of energy as it is used today, not just the source. Switch things off and use cleaner forms of energy for people who are are, are used to having abundant amounts of energy. We should listen to that and end this podcast with that closing note. Switch it off. Thank you so much, Daminella, for joining us. We'll put a link to your organization so people can look it up, what you're doing and all the great work. Thank you again. Talk to you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.